is ARN. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. The sound meter is jumping, so you can hear me. Oh, I'm still flabbergasted I did that on Wednesday. But hey, it's good to be with you. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and anything else I want to talk about. We webcast live every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the audio podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. Something about that website, that is a redirect. ChristianPodcastCommunity.com is just easy to remember. It actually goes to podcast.strivingforeternity.org, um, which is the host for the Christian Podcast Community. Um, we are a sub-ministry of Striving for Eternities. So, or Striving for Eternity, there's only one. <laughs> I've always done that. I've always called it Striving for Eternities. Uh, I know that's incorrect, but that's what my brain does. So just to, to let you know, I got an email yesterday or a message on Twitter, I think, where somebody said, hey, is this the right website? It's not. I went to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com and it took me here, which is a different website. That is a, a redirect to to the Striving for Eternity website, which is the home of the Christian Podcast Community. So just so you know, ChristianPodcastCommunity.com takes you to a different website, but that is the correct website. All right, what do we got coming up today? We have prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, and it's Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. We are going to be looking at Federalist number 29 today as we continue to read through the Federalist Papers, preparatory to a detailed in-depth look at the Constitution of the United States. Interestingly, I was listening to a guy, listening to a podcast yesterday um, to a, a gentleman that I, I very much respect and, and enjoy, um, but he, he made a comment that he considers the Constitution to be divinely inspired. And I want to get a hold of him and talk to him about that because it's not scripture. It's not a divinely inspired document. It, it is, you know, it was given to us by God's grace and God's providence, but it is not scripture. It's, that's a, so that's something to, to talk about. And uh, maybe I'll get him on the show and we'll talk about it. I'll see if I can I can work something out. Um, it would be it would be a fun conversation um, because, like I said, this is somebody this is somebody more on the political end of things. He's not one of these religious Trump cultists. 
he's a he's a fairly solid evangelical, although I would say probably from a more Arminian point of view. Um, he's, he's certainly not a Reformed Calvinist, but at least I don't think he is. Uh, I haven't heard anything that would would lead me to believe that he is he is Dorsian in his soteriology. Um, but yeah, the the Constitution is not an inspired document, but it's an important document. But it's no more inspired than the excuse me Magna Carta or or anything else um, that is a you know earthly worldly. Now, is it scripturally influenced? Yes. Is it, is it, does it rely heavily on a biblical worldview? Yes. Is it on the same level, level as Isaiah, Matthew, or Romans? No. And so that would be an interesting conversation to have. So I, I think I might reach out to him next week and see if I can't arrange a discussion of that. Um, just to see if he'd be willing to do that. And, and I'm intentionally not mis- mentioning his name. This is a nationally known, you know, syndicated podcast. This is not, 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 not a little podcast like I am. This is a big podcast and I don't want to cause him any issues um, cause it's, uh, it's somebody I listen to most days and, uh, does great political stuff. Used to be a frequent guest host for Rush Limbaugh. I mean, this is, so I don't want to cause him any issues, but I would like to have that conversation. All right. Let us begin as is our practice with the prayer of confession from the 2019 book of common prayer. Almighty and most merciful father. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. Our devotional today is entitled, We Must Defend and Proclaim the Word. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5.18 Dr. MacArthur writes, In considering our obligations to the divine scripture, Two other major obligations are crucial for the Christian. First, he or she must defend the Word of God. We should strive for the integrity, authority, and purity of the Bible. 
As Jude exhorts us, we must contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude 3. Charles Spurgeon wrote this about defending the word. The everlasting gospel is worth preaching even if one stood on a burning faggot and addressed the crowds from a pulpit of flames. The truths revealed in Scripture are worth living for, and they are worth dying for. I count myself thrice happy to bear reproach for the sake of the faith. Lastly, those who love the Lord to proclaim God's word, Spurgeon is again, those who love the Lord live to proclaim God's word. Spurgeon is again relevant. I would stir you all up to be instant in season and out of season in telling out the gospel message, especially to repeat such a word as this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whisper it in the ear of the sick, shout it in the corner of the streets, write it on your tablet, send it forth from the press, but everywhere let this be your great motive and warrant. Ask yourself, if you are not a preacher, you may feel somewhat excluded from this biblical mandate. But in what ways can proclamation of a, be a part of your life? What opportunities are available for you to inject God's truth into discourse or conversation? All right. The importance of sharing the gospel. We've talked about that a time or two on Squirrel Chatter. Um, that we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ whenever and wherever we are able. All right, well, it's Federalist Friday, and today we are reading Federalist number 29. The title of Federalist 29 is Concerning the Militia. And uh, this is from the Daily Advertiser, Thursday, January 10th, 1788. And the author is Alexander Hamilton. Again, this was published in newspapers all through the colonies. The, the copies that we have were preserved from the Daily Advertiser in New York. Um, so it is addressed to the people of the state of New York, but it was addressed similarly to the people of every other colony at the time, of which there were 13, and don't ask me to name them. All right. Concerning the militia. The power of regulating the militia and of commanding its services in times of insurrection and invasion are natural incidents to the duties of superintending the common defense and of watching over the internal peace of the Confederacy. It requires no skill in the science of war to discern that uniformity in the organization and discipline of the militia would be attended with the most beneficial effects whenever they were called into service for the public defense. It would enable them to discharge the duties of the camp and of the field with mutual intelligence and concert an advantage of peculiar moment in the operations of an army. And it would fit them much sooner to acquire the degree of proficiency in military functions which would be essential to their usefulness. The desirable uniform uniformity can only be accomplished by confiding the regulation of the militia to the direction of the national authority. It is, therefore, with the most evident propriety that the plan of the convention proposes to empower the Union 
to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Of the different grounds which have been taken in opposition to the plan of the convention, there is none that is so little to have been expected, or is it untenable in itself as the one from which this particular provision has been attacked. If a well-regulated militia, being the most natural defense of a free country, it ought certainly to be under the regulation and at the disposal of that body which is constituted the guardian of the national security. If standing armies are dangerous to liberty, an efficacious power over the militia in the body to whose care the protection of the state is committed ought, as far as possible, to take away the inducement and the pretext to such unfriendly institutions. If the federal government can command the aid of the militia in those emergencies which call for the military arm in support of the civil magistrate, it can the better dispense with the employment of a different kind of force. If it cannot avail itself of the former, it will be obliged to recur to the latter. To render an army unnecessary will be a more certain method of preventing its existence than a thousand prohibitions upon paper. In order to cast an odium upon the power of calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, it has been remarked that there is nowhere any provision in the proposed Constitution for calling out the posse comitatus to assist the magistrate in the execution of its duty, whereas it has been inferred that military force was intended to be his only auxiliary. There is a striking incoherence in the objections which have appeared, and sometimes even from the same quarter, not much calculated to inspire a very favorable opinion of the sincerity or fair dealing of their authors. The same persons who tell us in one breath that the powers of the federal government will be despotic and unlimited inform us in the next that it has not authority sufficient to even call out the posse comitatus. The latter, fortunately, is as much short of the truth as the former exceeds it. It would be as absurd to doubt that a right to pass all laws necessary and proper to execute its declared powers would include that if requiring the assistance of the citizens to the officers who may be entrusted with the execution of those laws, as it would be to believe that a right to enact laws necessary and proper for the imposition and collection of taxes would involve that of varying rules of dissent and the alienation of landed property, or of abolishing the trial by jury in case rela cases related to it. It being therefore evident that the supposition of a want of power to acquire the aid of the posse comitatus is entirely destitute of color, it will follow that the conclusion which has been drawn from it in its application to the authority of the federal government over the militia is as uncandid as it is illogical. What reason could there be to infer that force was intended to be the sole instrument of authority merely because there is a power to make use of it when necessary? What shall we think of the motives which could induce men of sense to reason in this manner? How shall we prevent a conflict between charity and judgment? By a curious refinement upon the spirit of republican jealousy, 
We are even taught to apprehend danger from the militia itself in the hands of the federal government. It is observed that select corps may be formed composed of the young and ardent who may be rendered subservient to the views of arbitrary power. What plan for the regulation of the militia may be pursued by the national government is impossible to be foreseen. But so far from viewing the matter in the same light with those who object to select corps, corps as dangerous, where the Constitution ratif- were the Constitution ratified and were I to deliver my sentiments to a member of the federal legislature from this state on the subject of a militia establishment, I should hold him in substance the following discourse. The project of disciplining all the militia of the United States is as futile as it would be injurious if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day or even a week that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of the yeomanry and of the other classes of the citizenry to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions, as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia, would be a real grievance to the people and a serious public inconvenience and loss. It would form an annual deduction from the productive labor of the country to an amount which, calculated upon the present number of the people, would not fall far short of the whole expense of the civil establishments of all the states. To attempt a thing which would abridge the mass of labor and industry to so considerable an extent would be unwise, and the experiment, if made, could not succeed, because it would not long be endured. Little more can reasonably be aimed at with respect to the people at large than to have them properly armed and equipped, and in order to see that this be not neglected, it will be necessary to assemble them once or twice in the course of a year. But through the scheme of disciplining the whole nation, but though the scheme of disciplining the whole nation must be abandoned as mischievous or impracticable, Yet it is a matter of the utmost importance that a well-digested plan should, as soon as possible, be adopted for the proper establishment of the militia. The attention of the government ought particularly to be directed to the formation of a select corps of moderate extent upon such principles as will really fit them for service in case of need. By thus circumscribing the plan, it will be possible to have an excellent body of well-trained militia ready to take the field whenever the defense of the state shall require it. This will not only lessen the call for military establishments, but if circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people while there is a large body of citizens, little if at all inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. This appears to me the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army and the best possible security against it if it should exist. Thus, differently from the adversaries of the proposed Constitution, should I reason on the same subject, deducing arguments of safety from the very sources which they represent as fraught with danger and perdition. But how the national legislature may reason at the po- on the point is a thing which neither they nor I can foresee. 
There is something so far-fetched and so extravagant in the idea of danger to liberty from the militia that one is at a loss whether to treat it with gravity or with raillery, whether to consider it as a mere trial of skill, like the paradoxes of of retortions, as a disingenuous artifice to instill prejudices at any price, or as the serious offspring of political fanaticism. Where in the name of common sense are our fears to end if we do not trust our sons, our brothers, our neighbors, our fellow citizens? What shadow of danger can there be from men who are daily mingled with the rest of their countrymen and who participate with them in the same feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests? What reasonable cause of apprehension can be inferred from a power in the Union to prescribe regulations for the militia and to command its service when necessary, while the particular states are to have the sole and exclusive appointment of the officers. If it were possibly, if it were possible, seriously to induce a jealousy of the militia upon any conceivable establishment under the federal government, the circumstance of the officers being in the appointment of the states ought at once to extinguish it. There can be no doubt that this circumstance will always secure to them a preponderating influence over the militia. In reading many of the publications against the Constitution, a man is apt to imagine that he is perusing some ill-written tale or romance which instead of natural and agreeable images exhibits to the mind nothing but frightful and distorted shapes, gorgons, hydras, and chimeras dire discoloring and disfiguring whatever it represents, and transforming everything it touches into a monster. A sample of this is to be observed in the exaggerated and improbable suggestions which have taken place respecting the power of calling for the services of the militia. That of New Hampshire is to be marched to Georgia, of Georgia to New Hampshire, of New York to Kentucky, and of Kentucky to Lake Champlain. Nay, the debts due to the French and Dutch are to be paid in militiamen instead of Louis d'Ors and ducats. At one moment there is to be a large army to lay prostrate the liberties of the people. At another moment the militia of Virginia are to be dragged from their homes five or six hundred miles to tame the Republican contumacy of Massachusetts, and that a Massachusetts is to be transported an equal distance to subdue the refractory haughtiness of the aristocratic Virginians. Do the persons who rave at this rate imagine that their art or their eloquence can impose any conceits or absurdities upon the people of America for infallible truths? If there should be an army to be made use of as the engine of despotism, what need of the militia? If there should be no army, whither would the militia, irritated by being called upon to undertake a distant and hopeless expedition for the purpose of riveting the chains of slavery upon a part of their countrymen, direct their course, but to the seat of their tyrants, who had meditated so foolish as well as so wicked a project, to crush them in their imagined entrenchments of power and to make them an example of the just vengeance of an abused and incensed people? Is this the way in which usurpers stride to dominion over a numerous and enlightened nation? Do they begin by exciting the detestations of the very instruments of their intended usurpations? 
Do they usually commence their careers by wanton and disgustful acts of power calculated to answer no end but to draw upon themselves universal hatred and execration? Are suppositions of this sort the sober admonitions of discerning patriots to a discerning people? Or are they the inflammatory ravings of incendiaries or distempered enthusiasts? If we were even to suppose the national rulers actuated by the most ungovernable ambition, it is impossible to believe that they would employ such preposterous means to accomplish their designs. In times of insurrection or invasion, it would be natural and proper that the militia of a neighboring state should be marched into another to resist a common enemy or to guard the republic against the violence of faction or sedition. This was frequently the case in respect to the first object in the course of the late war, and this mutual sucker is indeed a principal end of our political association. If the power of affording it be placed under the direction of the Union, there will be no danger of a supine and listless inattention to the dangers of a neighbor, till its near approach had superadded the incitements of self-preservation to the too feeble impulses of duty and sympathy, Publius. So, more interesting thoughts from the Federalist paper. Um, very interesting, the uh, um, comment on armed citizenry who are able to resist the government when the government is tyrannical. Um, that's one of the, that, that's probably the main the two purposes of the first of the Second Amendment was to have an armed populace that could be formed into a militia in time of need of mutual defense, and to have an armed populace that could resist tyranny. They're they're both there, <laughs> and and uh, that's one of the things that gun control advocates absolutely hate, because they do not like the idea of an armed populace that is able to resist the tyranny of the government. And the reason they don't like the idea is because they have tyrannical ambitions. I'll just leave that there. All right. Let us now recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now the colic for the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. Grant us, O Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who can no longer, who can do, beginning again, grant us, O Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who can do no good thing apart from you, may by you be enabled to live according to your will, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. 
now the colic for endurance. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory, but before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Now the colic for the unrepentant. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son, you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for this Friday. Sunday is coming. Make sure you get yourself into church on Sunday and have a great weekend, whatever your plans may be. It's going to be the hottest weekend of the summer so far here in the Piney Woods. Might even top 100 on Sunday. Not looking forward to that. I, uh, when in, in 1977, when we moved to Montana, and actually 76 when we first visited Montana uh, from Georgia, I was 11. <laughs> um, it felt, because it's, it's much cooler and much drier here than it is Atlanta. The humidity is much lower, and the temperatures are generally lower. And so when we moved here, the first couple of summers, it almost felt like it was air-conditioned because it was just so pleasant outside. And, and talking to, to friends, I mean, I was you know, talking to, to uh, John Benzinger lunch on, on Wednesday. We were talking about the, you know, he's from a dry heat in the Phoenix area, but still a, a, a much uh, hotter temperature. But coming up from the southeast with the humidity and everything to the drier, cooler temperatures of the mountains of Montana, it, it really did feel air-conditioned. But that was you know, 50, almost 50 years ago. And I've lived here ever since, except for you know, some short excursions elsewhere. And I'm, I'm now just like every other native Montanan. <laughs> when it gets up into the high 80s, low 90s, I whine like everybody else. Um, and so looking, looking at the 100-degree temperatures that we might hit this weekend, I'm not thrilled. <laughs> now, I understand it was like 115 in Phoenix yesterday. They can have it. I do. Uh, you know, Phoenix is great in January when the temperatures in Phoenix are kind of like our summer temperatures up here. Um, when I was in college, I used to make a trip down to the Phoenix area every February with a group of friends. And we could always tell the natives from the people from up north who were down visiting 
because in February in Phoenix, the, the local people are all wearing coats and jackets because it's cold to them. And we were all running around in shorts and sandals. So it, it, uh, cause it was, you know, it was summer weather for us. Um, it, it's, it's what you're used to. So I whine and complain when it gets above the high eighties, just like everybody else around here. And so not looking forward to the hundred degree temperature, but I am looking forward to church on Sunday. You make sure you do the same thing. Have a great weekend. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. We'll see you here Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.